Good evening. Good to see you guys. I'm glad that you're here. Don't forget, we're going to eat some food and fellowship with each other downstairs right after this. I'll see you down there. Let's go ahead and stand and begin the worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening and the day is almost over. Let your light scatter the darkness and illumine your church. Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father, heavenly, holy, blessed Jesus Christ, we have come to the setting of the sun and we look to the evening light. We sing to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy of being praised with pure voices forever. O Son of God, O giver of life, the universe proclaims your glory. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who led your people Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Enlighten our darkness by the light of your Christ. May his word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For you are merciful and you love your whole creation. And we, your creatures, glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Psalm 142. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Through 
Please stand for the gospel reading. This is uh, John 9, which we read last Sunday, the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it's he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man isn't from God, for he does, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, 
but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man weren't from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You may be seated. Three things I want to point out to you tonight about what Jesus does and who he is in John chapter 9. So first of all, let's talk about his goal, what he does. Then let's talk about his motivation, why he does it. And then let's talk about his power, how he does it. So first of all, Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal for the blind man, just like Jesus' goal for us, is love. Now that sounds weird, maybe. Maybe we're used to thinking of love as a motivation. Motivation will be the second point. Maybe we usually think of love as something that causes us to do stuff. You know, I take care of my kids because I love them. I give Angela a hug because I love her. I come here to serve you guys because I love you. Actually, love's kind of a lousy motivator. It's a better goal in the Bible. Love is something you do. It's not something that you look down deep inside of yourself to find the strength to do things. It's something that you do. We've got to get our motivation from somewhere else and not from love. We are, are, are all of us, of course, and I don't want to get too philosophical with you, we're all children of the romantic movement, which means we tend to see, you, you know, necessary actions need to be motivated by love if they're to be authentic. It's really kind of a, a weird way of thinking about love. Love isn't something you feel, it's something that you do. Feelings happen sometimes, of course, too, in the line of duty. But love is something that you do, and you're gonna have to seek your motivation for what you do in love somewhere else besides love, because if you think of love as a motivator, it's gonna come and go. Okay, uh, enough of that. Let's get on to what Jesus is doing. Jesus, what Jesus is doing is love. Now, there's two, two ways I want to point this out, if I can, quickly tonight in this text. First of all, Jesus initiates the relationship with this guy. You'll see in verses 6 and 7, they pass by the guy. They have this short conversation. Jesus says something back to his disciples in verse 6, and then he spits on the ground and makes mud with the saliva. Then he anoints the man's eyes with the mud, and he says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does, and he gets his sight back. Sometimes people ask Jesus to heal them, and he does it. Sometimes people don't ask Jesus at all, and he does it. It seems to be that the controlling factor is Jesus is doing it. Think about the woman whose son died, and they're carrying him out on the funeral procession. They don't, nobody in that funeral party asks Jesus for help. He walks up and does it. Jesus is the initiator. Any relationship that you have with Jesus is because he reached out to you. We call this love. 
he came to us. This is what love does is it reaches out beyond itself to the other. Jesus loves us. You see, again, at the end of the story, again he seeks the man out in verse 35. The guy gets kicked out of the synagogue, which in that culture would mean basically being kicked out of the life of the society. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, and then they had this conversation that we'll look at at the end of the sermon. Jesus goes and finds this guy. Look, this guy's not a client of Jesus. Jesus didn't perform a service for him, and now the service being performed, the guy goes on his way, having received the benefit of being healed by Jesus, and Jesus says, that's what I do. When the guy, when the guy gets kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus goes and finds him to establish relationship with him. This guy almost certainly is completely ostracized now. Even his own parents have turned tail on him. Even his own parents are scared of the authorities in the town, have created distance between them and their son. It's Jesus, though, who goes to him in his unloveliness, goes to him in his social outcast state, and builds a relationship with him. This is what love does. Love reaches out beyond itself to the other. It's only, it's only Jesus that does this, too. And when we do it, it's because of Jesus who's empowering us to do that. Jesus loves us. The second thing that we see, uh, the, the way that Jesus loves this guy and loves us too in the text is back at the very beginning in verses one through three. In verse two, um, his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Well, that's not a ridiculous question. We know all the way back in Genesis three that the reason why people are blind, the reason why people are poor, the reason why people struggle with all kinds of brokenness and sinfulness is because they've rebelled, we've, they, we've rebelled against God. It's not a bad question. This brokenness, where does it come from? Those of you who've gone through any sort of confirmation or catechism questions, you know the answer to that. Human sin. The world is a broken place because of human sin. It's absolutely not a ridiculous question. But what does Jesus do? Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus refuses to reduce the man to his sinfulness, even though it's the right answer. It's the right theological answer. Jesus re refuses to reduce the man to his own sinfulness. You are constantly being reduced to your sinfulness, either in your head or by other people, and we all do it to each other too. We find out that somebody's struggling with something and it's hard to see them any way except through that lens. Some of you can hardly sleep at night thinking about the things that you've done in your past to damage yourself and to damage other people. Some of you would like to forget, but nobody else will let you forget. Maybe you won't even let yourself forget, like I said. Jesus refuses to do that to you. Jesus sees us in our brokenness, and he doesn't say, there goes somebody who's terribly broken. He says, there's somebody who's highly eligible for the works of God to be displayed in their lives. He sees us through the lens of love. I can fix that person, Jesus says. He doesn't say, wow, that's pretty nasty. Having a conversation this morning at men's Bible study at a big turning point in my life, and a huge turning point in my life was um, my relationship with, I was, I was actually planning on putting this in the sermon, but I'll go ahead and say it. My relationship with Michael Walther at Good Shepherd, who when I came back to faith, I sat down with him at one point and had individual confession. And I was telling the guys this morning, a great fear in my mind was that I'm sharing like my deepest, darkest secrets with this guy and now he knows and I'm ashamed and he's gonna be ashamed for me and slightly embarrassed. And he never ever, he wasn't at all and he never treated me with anything except for love and acceptance. 
I receive that then as I received it, receive that now as I receive that then as the love of Jesus Christ communicated in the love that Mike Walther had for me. This is what Jesus does. He refuses to see this man in terms of his own sinfulness. The Pharisees do this. That's what the Pharisees do to the guy. The guy's having a conversation with them. He didn't even engage this conversation. They keep on coming up to him to say, what's going on here? And finally, he speaks up for himself. He speaks up for Jesus. And what do they say to him in verse 34? You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? What do they do? They refuse to see him through any other lens except for you're a sinner. This is what we do to, to each other, to ourselves. Part of it's unavoidable in the case of the Pharisees by comparing ourselves, by saying they're sinners and we're not. We create a space for us to self-justify, a space for us to be righteous in our own eyes. Jesus refuses to let us do that too. His love is too powerful for our self-justification efforts. His love is also too powerful for our self-condemnation efforts. In either case, Jesus' love overcomes us because he, the final judge, the only person who has the ability and the authority to make absolute, final, perfect judgment, looks at me and you and says, I don't see your sin. I see God's glory being displayed in your lives, even when we can't see it. Jesus' goal is to love us. Well, why does he do this? I kind of hinted at this at the, at the end of what I just said here. His motivation, again, is not love, Love is what he does. His motivation is his father's glory. Back in verse three. It's not that this man sinned, Jesus said, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why is this guy blind? This guy is blind because God wants to reveal his glory in his life. Do you and I have the faith to look at the brokenness of our own lives to look at all the things that you struggle with, to look at the loss that you've experienced, the impending loss that's right down the road for you and you know it's coming, the physical ailments that you've struggled with, the guilt for sins committed in the past that you struggle with, the guilt for the sins that you're gonna to commit tomorrow because you know you can't stop committing that one sin that you're, that, 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 that you're struggling with, the ways that you've been betrayed in the past, the ways that you've had hopes and dreams that have been crushed. Do you and I have the faith to look at those things and say, those have happened to me intentionally because God wants to get glory in my life? It's not an easy thing to say. On some level, this is sort of cruel. Why was this man born blind? Why is this guy sit, sat here for probably over 20 years because he's described as a man? Why is this guy sat here, poor, hungry, blind for 20 years? And Jesus says, he's gone through all of that for this moment you're about to witness. This man is blind because God wants to display his glory. Now one thing you can do is you can say, that's cruel on God's part. Is, that's, that's, a, that's an objection that's worth raising, isn't it? Does this mean that God doesn't love us? No, that's Jesus' that's Jesus's goal, is, is God's love for us. So it's gotta be something different. Let me suggest that it's actually, it's not that God doesn't love us, it's that we need to reframe our definition of what God's love is. See, all too frequently we think that if God loves me, I shouldn't be blind. If God really loves me, I shouldn't be poor. If God really loves me, I shouldn't die. If God really loves me, that person shouldn't have abandoned me. And actually, if God really loves us, it means he's decided to display his glory in us. And that means, like Joseph, 
being thrown in cisterns sometimes, being abandoned by brothers sometimes, being falsely accused of crimes and sins you didn't commit sometimes. And the eyes of faith say at the end of those experiences, God meant it for good. It's not easy. I'm not, I, I, it's, it's easy for me to stand up here and take the three minutes that it's taken for me to make this point. And it sounds like it's easy. And I know it's not. I know it's all too easy to, to doubt God. It's all too easy to be bitter. But let's let this text keep on pulling us back to the God who loves us and says, my love for you means I want to display my glory in your brokenness. I want my strength to be put on display in your weakness. I want the exaltation of the risen Christ to be made evident in the sufferings that you share with him. It's hard to do, but it's super valuable. It's one way that people smile in the face of martyrdom. It's one way that people are happy in the face of financial ruin or relational brokenness, knowing that God has this. He's got this. And he's displaying his love for me because at any moment now, Jesus is going to act to display God's works in my life. God's glory is a powerful motivation. And of course, God's glory is actually in the story, Jesus' glory. And you can't separate the two. Again, that's what the Pharisees try to do in verse 24, isn't it? The second time they call the man who had been blind and say to him, now give glory to God. Stop giving credit to this Jesus guy. You need to give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The guy can't do it though, and he doesn't really understand exactly what he's saying. All he knows is that he used to be blind and now he sees and it was this guy who did it. Weirdly enough, it's the Pharisees continuing hounding of him that actually evangelizes him. The beginning of the series of conversations, he's like, I don't know what happened. I was sitting there, some guy put mud on my eyes, said go wash and now I see. By the end of the conversation, he's trying to convince the Pharisees that this guy does come from God and is doing the works of God. Holy Spirit works in weird ways, doesn't he? The Pharisees are interested in God's glory, but only on their own terms. The Pharisees are interested in God's glory, but only if this guy is working for the Pharisees in their particular interpretation of Moses' law. And then we'll say it was God, God gets the glory. We all do this. We're all Pharisees. It's God's glory if, you know, if it's my sermons that creates good stuff in our lives. And if somebody else does it, why didn't you listen to me? No, God gets the glory wherever he wants us. And, and the, 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 the place that he wants to do that is Jesus. God's glory is Jesus' glory. It's interesting, Jesus says, the works of God, this, this man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed in him. And then he does something. It's not really an explicit claim to divinity, but there's something going on there. God is going to act in this guy's life, Jesus says to his disciples, and bring himself glory. And okay, so God, what are you gonna do? The next thing you know, Jesus is spitting on the ground and making mud and slapping it on this guy's face, and he's healed. Jesus' glory is God's glory. They don't split glory. The only way to get God's glory is to go through Jesus. You guys already know that, though. I'll move on from that point. I'm preaching to the choir definitely there. So that's Jesus' goal, which is his love. His motivation is his Father's glory, which ends up being his own glory. John 17, by the way, is super explicit. I said I was gonna move on, and then I thought of one more thing I wanted to say. Jesus talks about how you and I shared glory from before the foundation of the world. Jesus says in his prayer in John 17 as he's going to the cross, now glorify me so that the world can see that we've shared this glory. Uh, again, I'm, I'm evangelizing the evangelized, the currently evangelized. I'll move on. How does Jesus do this? Well, he does it through his own judgment. Look at the last part of the text, John uh, 9, verse 39. Jesus meets with this guy, says, I'm the son of man. He, he, he worships him, literally, he 
prostrates himself before him in verse uh, 38. But in verse 39, Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world. How does God love us? How does God display the works of his Father's glory in our lives? His answer is, for judgment I came into this world. Judgment's not bad. Oh, it can be bad. It all depends. You, you go before the, for, for the judge, for the judgment, and if he says you're guilty, it's bad, of course. But if he says you're justified, it's good, of course. Jesus is thinking of both parties in this case. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see, like the blind man, may see. And those who see, like the Pharisees, may become blind. Verse 40, one of the Pharisees at least gets it. Some of the Pharisees get it, what he's saying, the analogy. So they say to him, are we also blind? Do you mean that although we can see, we're blind? And then Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. See what he's saying? The damnation doesn't come from being blind. The damnation comes from being blind and pretending like you can see. The damnation comes from acting like, I've got this, I've got this. I can do this. I know, maybe, maybe Jesus can give me a little help along the way. But I can do this, I can see on my own. I'm aware, I know what's going on. Pharisees, loaded up like they are on Moses' law and on all kinds of learning, know that they can see. They're the ones who train everybody else to see. And Jesus says, well, you can see, which means you're blind. The blind man, though, he can't see nothing. He doesn't know anything. He honestly doesn't even know who healed him. When's the first time he sees Jesus in this story? Well, it's not till verse 30, 30 uh, 35. It's mud slapped on his eyes. He hears a voice saying, go and wash. And then he goes and washes. And the next time he actually sees Jesus is when Jesus comes and meets him after he's been kicked out of the synagogue. He knows he's blind. He knows he needs help. He knows he's broken. This is what, this is what, this is, you guys are, again, you already know this. This is what differentiates Christians from non-Christians. In terms of morality, they're both equal. In terms of morality, we're both proficient in breaking the Ten Commandments. Christians are the ones who say, though, I'm lost. I need outside help. I need salvation. Those who aren't Christians say, I can do this on my own. I can work harder at this, or I don't need help, or however it is that they want to say it. If you're blind, you're good. If you're not blind, then you're not good. It's the great reversal. We're going to sing in the Magnificat in just a few minutes this theme of the poor being made rich and the rich being made poor, the healthy being made sick and the sick being made healthy, the barren woman given lots of kids and the woman with lots of kids having them taken away. Jesus' judgment is a reversal of the expectations of the fallen world. We think we know what's happening. We think we know what's happening because we, we can see. But in God's judgment, we find out that those who are blind are actually the sighted ones. And those who can see end up being blind. Well, how does he do this? Well, again, let's go back to the word judgment. He does this through judgment. For judgment I came into this world. Jesus makes it happen through judgment. What does this mean? Can I pull us back? I didn't put this in the readings tonight because, I, uh, I don't know, we've been reading the Psalms, and so I didn't want to get away from that. And I don't expect you to remember what the Old Testament reading was two weeks ago, but it's a good one. It's the first servant song in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, where this happens. Uh, uh, God says, hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. That's what God does, is he gives sight to the blind, right? Well, the next line adds an element of confusion into it. 
Who is blind but my servant, he says in Isaiah 42, 19. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? What does that mean? Well, on the surface level, it means God called Israel to be his servant to lead the Gentiles to the light. But they didn't do it. They ended up at the end of the day being just as blind as the Gentiles were, and they needed their own rescuing. But when you keep on reading the servant Psalms, 1, 2, 3, and 4, all the way through Isaiah 53, what you see is that the servant actually is it's Israel. Israel was called to do this job of bringing the Gentiles to the light. But it ends up being this one individual who, at the end of the day, does Israel's work for her. The work of converting the Gentiles, one guy ends up stepping in and does it for And Isaiah doesn't tell us who it is. It's just referred to as the servant. The New Testament's very insistent, though, that it's Jesus who is the servant of God who does this. Which means when we go back to Isaiah 42 and we read about this blind servant, who is blind? Nobody is as blind as my dedicated one. Nobody is as blind as the servant of the Lord. It makes sense. What happens to him? What does God have to do to this blind servant? this servant who carries the blindness of the nations in his own eyes. Verse 25, so God poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. What does Jesus mean when he says, I came to judge the world to give sight to the blind? He means I'm gonna become blind myself so I can take on that judgment. See, you only get your sight back if you have the laser surgery that can give you your sight back. But that means somebody's gotta lay down the table and the surgeon's gotta open up the laser and start cutting into your eye. And you and I couldn't survive that. Jesus can, though. He lays down on the table and gets the surgery for us. And now we have been given sight because Jesus was made blind, just like we've been given wealth because Jesus was made poor, just, because, just like we've been given life because Jesus was killed, just, because, just like we've been given hope because Jesus' situation was hopeless, just like we've been made righteous because Jesus became sinful. And now we have sight. I, I know we don't see all the time, that, that sometimes we are blind. But it's not because our sight's bad anymore, it's because we close our eyes. At this stage of the game, Jesus has done the surgery, and we've been healed. Because he loves us. Because he's interested, most of all, in his Father's glory. And that's not any different than his love for us. His Father's glory is redemption for us. And he does this through his own judgment, he says. He doesn't tell anybody at this point, but the time you get to the end of the Gospel of John, you see that it's the judgment on himself. He came for judgment, judgment on himself, so that we who were blind could see. Let's pray. Father, make us grateful for the sight that your son Jesus won for us on the cross. Give us the wisdom to say we are blind people by nature, and the sight we have is purely a gift of yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
imagination of their hearts. He has cast on the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For this holy house and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For Pastor Harrison and Pastor Shar for all pastors in Christ, for all servants of the church, and for all the people, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For President Biden, Governor Pritzker, Mayor Marcus, for all public servants, for the government and those who protect us, that they may be upheld and strengthened in every good deed, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who work to bring peace, justice, health, and protection in this and every place, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For those who bring offerings, those who do good works in this congregation, those who toil, those who sing, and all the people here present who await from the Lord great and abundant mercy, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For favorable weather, for an abundance of the fruits of the earth, and for peaceful times, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For our deliverance from all affliction, wrath, danger, and need, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the faithful who've gone before us and are with Christ, let us give thanks to the Lord. Thanks be to God. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. Rejoicing in the fellowship of all the saints, let us commend ourselves one another and our whole life to Christ our Lord. To you, O Lord. O God, from whom come all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works. Give to us, your servants, that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and also that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may live in peace and quietness through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you and keep you. Amen. Shit.